0: This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena de Groot. Today, As I Am. When I talked to Ama Kojo, who was in Italy on a fellowship, she told me she doesn't write for a reader. She writes for herself. And I think you can see that in her poems. They're so unpredictable and free the literary equivalent of dance like nobody's watching. In her latest collection, Bluest Nude, she centers the body, specifically the black female body, not as an object, look at everything that is done to black women, but as a subject. This is what it feels like to go on a long walk, lie on the grass, take a bath, make love. As she puts it in one poem, my body is a lens I can look through with my mind. With her body as the lens, she notices all these other bodies. Her mothers, her siblings, her cousins, as well as the bodies of women in paintings, sculptures, dance. She even builds her own personal canon of black women artists. The painter Lynette Yadambuachi, the photographer Diana Lawson, the assemblage artist Betty Saar, and Simone Lee, the now world-famous ceramicist who represented the U.S. at this year's Venice Biennale. And it's with Simone Lee that Ama Kojo's book begins, actually, because right there on the cover of Bluest Nude is one of Lee's sculptures of a female figure in glazed earthenware. Here's our conversation. I first wanted to start with the world's of the book, because you created such an immersive world, uh, you know, a whole mood, as the kids say, with with you know the kind of scenes that you find in paintings, you know, women bathing, lying on the grass, you know, in an embrace with their lover, and you also reference a lot of art in your poems. So, can you tell me about that process? How did you build the worlds of inspiration for your book, and then what were you looking for? hmm There's nothing about,
1: I guess, the point of time in, in the making of the book where I became conscious of an objective, which was to make paintings, strangely, uh, out of poems, to try to think about the Black female nude in my own life and in situations that I imagine and to make those portraits. So what you're speaking to, I think is like really in line with my intentions. And I just let my imagination go. So like, for instance, just the question of where am I naked, for example, and thinking about this really great (laughs) (laughs) spa in Koreatown in Los Angeles and where, You know, one of the kind of rules for being there is that you have to be naked when you're in the pools. And I just remember just seeing all kinds of different bodies and having a really kind of uh, meaningful experience and then transferring that into a poem, just thinking about, like, this is a version of heaven and who would be in that heaven, you know? But Gwendolyn Brooks... (laughs) (laughs) I'm Wanda Coleman and you know what does heaven mean Uh, well maybe it's a relinquishing of the things that feel sorrowful even in the things that have not happened yet like the death of my mother so yeah it's kind of um, I guess a series of questions that I was asking myself and then led myself into these these paintings that are poems Mm
0: mm-hmm yeah, the, I used to live around the corner from that particular spa, and uh, what I love about it is that it's—it's it's, it, you know when you think of spa, you think of this really pretentious, expensive place, you know, with sort of lights and music, and this one is like not pretentious at all, and it's a lot cheaper, and as a result, you see a bigger variety of people. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering, can you set the scene? What you know, what was your experience going to that spa, and why? is that spa the one that you choose for Mm -hmm. heaven, your image of heaven? Yeah.
1: Well, I I went with a dear friend who was living in Los Angeles at the time and raved about it. And I actually was a little um, maybe shy. (laughs) I was like, do I want to go to a place where I have to be naked? Uh, And we went and it was so, I guess, surprisingly wonderful In the sense of like, there's something really affirming about just seeing people's fleshy bodies that is not like Photoshop, that is not like some really toxic, streamlined idea of what a body should be. And I love those moments, like in a gym or after a dance class or whatever. It's just like, this is the flesh. (laughs) This is what the flesh looks like. And then it's a healing space. And like you said, it's, it's really affordable like if I lived in LA I would be there all the time um and you can just like kind of be like a tea bag you know in <laughs> and a, and a, and a bath full of mugwort and it's just incredible like you know here we are tending to ourselves like how beautiful is that in a world that is really um hard on us yeah you know and I just thought it was remarkable so i'm sure i was just not only experiencing my own joy and pleasure and soothing but just looking around like marveling at that that space like that existed yeah because i'd never been in
0: a a space like that before and if i remember correctly it's open 24 7 or something right so you can go at 3 a.m if you like (laughs) (laughs) yeah people like
1: people can you know there's food there's like a a warm jade floor where you can like put a robe on and lay down. People bring their laptops, they work, people spend the night. Like it's, you know, it's a lot. There's a whole, you know, culture of spas like that in Koreatown. And it just seems so right. Yeah, It seems like something that the world needs.
0: <laughs> yeah. So when you went there, how long did it take for you to go from, oh, I don't know if I want to be naked to feeling like, this is good. This is this is healing.
1: It was a pretty instant situation.
0: <laughs> it was a pretty instant situation. Because
1: I, uh, I have a dance background. So, like, taking off my clothes is not that big of a deal. Yeah, I have a lot of comfort with my body. And once it was just like, this is what it is. It was fine. It was maybe more the thinking about it that was, like, uh, causing me issue rather than the actual experience of it. Yeah, which yeah, felt yeah, totally natural and fine. Um,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, that's also the thing about dancing, right? Like when you take your clothes off as a dancer, well, it's in the context of a dressing room with the other dancers, mm-hmm. or, you know, even on the context of being on a stage and having very little on there's like a, a frame for it, you know, and mm-hmm. I can imagine that before you're used to this new frame, you're like, oh, is that frame going to be enough To put me in the right, you know, to be like, this is okay. I'm not just disrobing in the supermarket, you know. (laughs) Exactly. I was wondering if we can read the poem. Yeah. So it's on page 52, Heaven as Olympic Spa. Okay. Heaven
1: as Olympic Spa, Koreatown, Los Angeles. Gwendolyn Brooks stood stark naked. I stared into her bespectacled eyes. Ms. Brooks showed me how to tend to myself by scrubbing dead skin with a coarse washcloth, rinsing the body's detritus down a common drain. My flesh was taut, loose, and dying. Even in paradise, I was dying. At first, this surprised me. Oh, the capsized boat of the body, Wanda Coleman sighed. We keep sailing even when we believe we're ashore. Coleman drifted to sleep on the heated jade floor. Clasping my spa provided robe, I lay on my side beside her. Do the dead dream? I wondered to myself. Wrong question, Coleman muttered. I remembered sleeping beside my mother, touching her nightgown lightly, as if a gesture could restore the cord that in the beginning tethered us, as if I smelled her death in the satin scarf, keeping the plastic curlers in place, or in the Vaseline glossing her arms. In childhood, I pined for my mother, though she was there. Here, in the afterlife, I had no mind to search for her. I was freed from a loss that haunted me even before it occurred. Gwendolyn Brooks hummed a wordless song that stripped me of all longing. I untied the robe's stiff belt and walked amongst the nude women. My skin brushed smooth and silent. I was ordinary and motherless. Because I was not alone, my nakedness felt Unremarkable. I didn't miss my mother. I didn't miss missing her.
0: It's such an incredible poem. There's so many strands coming together. You know, sisterhood, mortality, mm-hmm. the meaning of nudity, the way our mothers are always inside our bodies and we inside theirs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that longing to let me see in childhood I pined for my mother though she was there here in the afterlife I had no mind to search for her I was freed from a loss that haunted me even before it occurred Um, later in the poem you write I was ordinary and motherless I think uh, for women especially the foundational part of our self image the way we relate to our body come so often from our mother mm-hmm. and I was wondering if if that's true for you and if so how, how was that definitely I think
1: um there is that kind of mind-boggling fact that we are like in our mothers who were in their mothers who were in their mothers like on and on and on and on I, I mean I I don't know I can remember like being the size of wrapping my arm around my mother's leg, (laughs) you know? Yes. And looking and looking at her body. And today it's like looking at her and seeing myself in the future. Like it's, I feel like it's hard not to think about all of those things in a regular interaction with her. And it feels like some kind of consolation to know that no matter if my mom is living or dead, like I'm marked by her in my physicality and my, obviously in the way that, you know, I was raised and gestures. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a, um a really central relationship. And I think it comes up in the book in a lot of different ways. Also just like in the poem, Lotioning My Mother's Back, like where I'm really, Seeing her, I, I, cause I can remember being a child and seeing like the moles on her body and being like, wow, there's so many moles. And like now <laughs> I have so many yeah. moles. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, 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 yeah, it's this aging, yeah. this aging body.
0: I also feel like often we model the way our mothers relate to their own body. If they are filled mm-hmm. with shame we are more likely to be filled with shame. If they feel free in their bodies, there's at least a good starting point for us to feel more free <laughs> in ours. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say that. the You know, the relationship is so automatic. I, I don't think so. Um How was how it for you?
1: I think she critiqued her body a lot. I think that's still the case, but I think it's less so now. But oh. I... I thought about this a lot, like because I was a dancer, I grew up like from four or five through being in my early twenties. Um, so I had to think a lot about body image, and I, I, I honestly think the way that I feel embodied and the way that I feel about my body, which is largely positive has not to do with the dance world. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no surprise there. Yes, yes.
1: <laughs> but more to do with the fact that I just don't consume a lot of images. Huh. Like I'm a very low tech person. I don't read the glossy magazines and I don't watch the things on the internet or TV. Like I just don't. And so I, I really only have Images of women's bodies from real life, like from the moments in ballet studio, like from the gym, the YMCA, (laughs) you know, in bedside Brooklyn, from like the spa in Los Angeles. Like it's and they're not whatever that other version is. They're just not that they are like dimpled and they have cellulite and they're like regular bodies. Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't expect my body, especially my naked body to be anything but what it is. I think if I'm like, this is very strangely particular, but in a swimsuit, I have all these images of women in swimsuits and I can compare my body to that. But when I'm naked, it's just like the naked women I've seen look like me, you know, they look yes. varied and like me.
0: <laughs> that is so, such a good point. yeah. I'm also wondering, you know, uh, how old are you? I'm 43. Because, you know, in the poem, you write, my flesh was taut, loose and dying. Even in paradise, I was dying. This is such an interesting line to me. Can you tell me how you relate to your own constant dying? Aging mm-hmm. and kind of contending with mortality. Yeah.
1: Um, it's not so bad. My grandmother, my mother's mother, she told me never to get a perm. So, you know, for her <laughs> black women, that's like straightening their hair. Never uh-huh. to chemically process my hair. And she said, and never dye your hair. By which she meant not like blue, but more like to get rid of the grays. Mm. Um, and I live by those two things. <laughs> and I think they've saved me from a lot of trouble because yeah. I think she was really just saying the upkeep for this is a lot, you know, <laughs> like yeah. you might think this is a good idea, but you will have to continually like be in the beautician's chair.
0: Yeah. Forever. <laughs> yes. Spend all this money. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, just to kind of take those two, like I straightened my hair for a, a long time. Like that was what I grew up. That's what my mother chose for my hair. That's what I did to tend to my hair until I was in my late teens, early twenties, when I decided I, I just wanted to let it grow naturally. And my grays are certainly there. I, I don't. You know, I don't love them. But (laughs) today happens to be my mother's 70th birthday. And the truth is, like, you know, what's the alternative to not grow old? Yeah. You, You know? And, you know, I've had experiences where people who are young have died. Yeah. So I don't know if this sounds impossible or not, but I have a pretty good relationship to my aging body, I just feel like I want to be in the world as I am and make whatever choices feel good to me. That could be anything. It's it's I very unlikely not going to be dying my hair because I'm <laughs> a very low maintenance person. <laughs> but if I wanted to, I would. So it's not about the choice. It's more just the acceptance of like, I'm here.
0: There's another thing that, you know, I always feel sort of awkward and out of place for asking about, but, um, your book is is very much not just about the body and how, you know, how it is to live embodied in a world that, yeah, wants to criticize us all the time for doing just that, mm-hmm. but it's also specifically a book about and for black women, mm-hmm. and I don't know how off the mark I am, but just from casual observation, I often have the sense that the closer you are to the white supremacist ideal, the less liberated you are about your body, which is sort of like an upside down thing, right? Like mm-hmm. you would think that the more you conform to the ideal that society has put forth, the happier you'd be with your body. Mm-hmm. And yet I feel like that is not the case, you know, that uh, if mm-hmm. you are actually almost there, that the criticism is just unrelenting and the kind of stuff that sends you to the plastic surgeon and on and on, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm wondering if that is anything that resonates for you. And if so, how, like, are are you just born happier is that the laborious work that you have to do every day like is that Mm -hmm. something you do for each other Mm -hmm. can you tell me a little bit about that
1: yeah yeah i love i love it i love all that that's great um just because it's so complex i i think you're right and then noticing about being closer to an ideal that has been shaped with an imagination that is white supremacist (laughs) and I think there's something about black culture specifically. I mean, I just had this flash of like, oh, when my, my family, or I grew up in, in Ohio in the Midwest and we drove to Toronto one year and went to Carabana. So a really huge Caribbean festival. I mean, this obviously has an equivalent in many, many, many places, but just thinking about that body, celebrated like you know hips and breasts and you know it's it's like a different culture right like it's it's a different culture it's a different culture it's not like the narrow like trying to fit into a very very small box yeah even though at the same time if we're thinking about the united states in the context of the united states like we all have the same tv so it's not to say that those ideals are not like Also being eaten for breakfast, lunch and dinner. Mm -hmm. But I do think there's something about black culture that is embracing of a full bodied person. And yeah, I think that that is equivalent to this idea of like what I am consuming, like what is beautiful to me. I mean, if I look at my family, I'm not looking at like, to be specific, a super thin, very tall, blonde, person I'm looking at mostly women my mom has three sisters I have a lot of women in my family who are just like beautiful and they don't look like that yeah (laughs) so that's another piece it's like what is being reflected around a person which is sometimes choice and sometimes sometimes not
0: one one essay that is sort of Underneath a lot of this book is an essay by Lorraine O'Grady, the African-American artist and critic. um, God, what was it called now? Olympia's Maid? Something like that. Mm -hmm. And she writes, I'm going to paraphrase, she writes that, you know, you can criticize the white gaze and, you know, what it does to us all you want. But it won't get you any closer to being who you are. Um, she writes, "It cannot turn you from an object into a subject of history." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, how do you become a subject instead of the object?
1: Yeah, so that's like a that's a pivotal text that I think you put it well. That's like that my book is resting on, um, that's underneath the book, and that sentiment in particular. So criticizing kind of them or criticizing racism, institutional racism, white supremacy, does not get me closer to my own self-making was like a an arrow or directional force in thinking about even composing the poems because I really wanted to focus on, I guess, this figure and not the forces of oppression that are also impacting this figure, (laughs) meaning the Black, um, feminine, nude. So I think it's through expression. Just actually stopping to express who I am is how I make myself. And when I'm only focused on the kinds of oppression that shape my life, I'm missing the part where I'm expressing myself. So (laughs) a goal of the book was to be like, okay, I'm not going to ignore the things that shape my reality, but I don't want to foreground them in this moment. I want to foreground all these other moments and people and experiences that are me. And like, wow, what is all of that (laughs) and how beautiful and rich and sorrowful and, joyful and complex that is as opposed to okay let's again talk about how whiteness is an issue
0: (laughs) yeah yeah well that's what i thought was so ah back to you know the world that you create in bluest nude you know it just felt like you're stepping into a kind of utopia Mm. and and it's not it's not like Afro-futurist or something. There's nothing really futurist about it. It's so clearly in the now, you know? Mm-hmm. It's so clearly uh, focusing on the living you already do and on the pleasure you already have, dancing or making love or just being naked with Gwendolyn Brooks and <laughs> Wanda <laughs> Coleman. <laughs> um and I find it so interesting because, you know, the essay by Lorraine O'Grady, even though, yeah, that's informing the book in many ways, you take it so many steps further. I feel like she diagnoses the problem and then you run with it. You you know, she writes about how black women have been, quote, so long unmirrored in our true selves, we may have forgotten how we look She also, you know, she writes about this invisibility in many ways. She writes about how up until the 1960s, even in the work of African-American artists, there were no black nudes. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I feel like she's doing a lot of diagnosing. And you take that diagnosis and then go like, great, let, let me then actually show what could be or what already is. And I'm wondering how you pried open your own imagination, because I think the limits of our worlds also have a tendency to limit our imagination of what's possible. And so in what ways did you push against those limits? Yeah, well, thank you for that. It's really
1: um, very cool. (laughs) to be in the position of like making something and then to hear someone who really spent time with it and understands it like reflect back. It really is a privilege. Um so thank you for yeah. that. Yeah. Um I don't know. I I think I just I mean we're as as poets and artists, we're misfits and weirdos. Like I just like give myself <laughs> the space. And then I made, and I guess that, you know, the space part is a foundational piece. Like I I couldn't, I don't really write in my everyday life. It's certainly not the thing that you hear a lot of writers, especially who are mothers say, which is like, I just took a snatch of time in the morning and then like, I was writing on a napkin and like, I really need deep time and slowness. I need to not be in the job of caretaking for anyone besides myself when I'm writing. So I love residencies. (laughs) (laughs) I love residencies. That is where the majority of the poems that I write get written. Mm -hmm. And when I'm away, I literally say to my friends and family, if you would like to (laughs) contact me, you can write me a letter. Here's Um, my address. Yes. So I think the imagination and the kind of prying open and the freeness and like the ability to do what you're describing came from the space. If I didn't have that space, I certainly would be writing different poems. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I'm really grateful for having the spaces to slow down and just be I mean you're I'm sitting at a desk for hours and I can go for a long walk and be amongst the trees and then someone prepares a really amazing meal and like that's my existence for 30 days you know
0: sounds sounds pretty good (laughs) yes (laughs) um I'm also I mean thinking about the choice to have time and to have space and it does sit at odds with the job of caretaking. And I'm wondering what kind of caretaking you do in your ordinary life. Yeah, it's
1: with my family and friends. It's not, I don't have someone that's ill or sick that I'm caretaking for, but it's just emotional being available. Someone saying, I have this question. I need this advice. I need a thought partner for this. I have uh, for many years, I was an educator. And so I have this kind of tribe of of mostly girls <laughs> who are now women who I tend to in the ways that I can and who, you know, expect me to be available. So it's just relationships, which I prize. I like being mm-hmm. dependable. And I've always had like really deep friendships with people, even more so than romantic Like that has been like the consistent force of good in my life. It's been really sisterhood, honestly. And that just means I got to show up. I take that pretty seriously. So that's the kind of caretaking. And then (laughs) I'm a facilitator. So I lead a lot of workshops or, you know, have conversations with nonprofits about justice, about equity, about group dynamics. So because of that, I'm also just like always seeing what's going on in a space and who's talking and who's not talking. And it's really hard to turn that off. (laughs)
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So those are the kinds of caretaking that I mean. One thing that I also, that really resonated for me in your book is the fact that you don't have children. Mm -hmm. There's this one poem where, yeah, you write that you're often, mistaken for a mother sometimes because you have a kid with you like a nephew or something but sometimes also just because you know whatever people Mm -hmm. make all kinds of assumptions about women Um, and I am not here to ask you why don't you have to I mean I've spent my 30s defending myself and justifying myself for not having children and I would never do that to anyone else but I am interested in how you see the life that you can lead specifically as a woman when motherhood is taken out of the equation yeah well
1: I mean what I've seen and for a long time at this point and a lot of different friends who have kids of varying ages is it's a little bit impossible not to be consumed I mean you you're literally like If you've given biological birth to your child, you're literally feeding them from your body and oftentimes sleep deprived for like a number of years. Um, There's so many things that go into that path. And I think for me being an artist, like what feels really liberating is just like being able to go away, like I mentioned. (laughs) Which is I think a, a difficulty. Even with the residencies that are kind of trying to think about supporting parents better. Usually those residencies are like five days or like seven days. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And I'm five days, I'm just getting there. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm yeah. just <laughs> so I have what I need to make the art I want to make. And that my life supports that. And I think there are specific ways that children change an artist's life and change the way that they make work. And that's not, you know, negative. That just is what it is. And there are certain ways that I have access to a kind of life that for me is, is really meaningful, beautiful, and fulfilling and allows me to make the kind of art that I, that I want to make.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if we can get to another poem. Mm -hmm. How about, um, let me see. One poem that I love, 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 although I don't understand it at all, but it seems like an experience, like going to a concert where everyone is sweating and the music feels physical more than something Mm -hmm. just for your ears. That's how this poem felt to me. After a year of forgetting. Mm. It's on page 80 something. 80. Just 80. Mm
1: -hmm. After a year of forgetting. Now I will learn how to tie an apron and unclasp my bra from behind. I will become hard like a moss covered rock. I'll be stiff as a nightgown, dried on the line. When the pond freezes over, I'll walk to its center and lie face up until it is May and I am floating. I'll become an anchor pitched skyward. I will steer chiseled ships, spinning fortune's splintered wheel. I will worry over damp stones. I will clean ash from the Madonna's cheek, using the wet rag of my tongue. I'll make myself shrine-like in porcelain. I will stand still as a broken clock. I will be sore from love making. I will become so large, my hair loosened, will be mistaken for the swallow's cave. After June, there's a year of forgetting. After the forgetting, antlers adorn the parlor walls. Then it snows and I'll be coarse I'll be soft as my mother's teeth. I'll be sugar crystals and feathery snow. I'll be fine. I will melt. I will make children from office paper. They'll be cut from my stomach, wearing blank faces, bald and silent. They will come out of me, triplicates holding hands. I will smooth their foreheads with a cool iron. I will fold the tepid laundry, turn down the sheets, then sleepwalk along the Mississippi until it is ocean and I'm its muddy saint. I will baptize myself in silt and December. I will become a pungent, earthly bulb, I'll pillar to salt. I'll remember the pain of childbirth, remember being born. How is it to read this? I mean, it's lovely. I, yeah, there's something, actually something I've noticed about my poems when I'm writing, it's like this, this future, uh-huh. this will thing. <laughs> um, and I guess I was in this moment of wanting to reclaim what I wanted, which is also a theme in the book. There's so much about desire what I'm claiming will happen. And obviously it's not like in the, in the language of like a, a five-year plan. or something. Like
0: that. My goals.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I just, I guess, remember the impulse, the kind of, I think it was following a season of sorrow and letting go.
0: Can I ask what the sorrow was about?
1: has a loss of a relationship. I think at the beginning of that, let's say heartbreak, there was the intense grief, which might be called fire, that I think is it's actually an honor to go through. But then by the time I was writing this poem, it was a year after that. And so there was something a lot softer and far away less fire and the year after any kind of loss like is um it's finally free of you know last year at this time i was doing this with this person or last year at this time you know i celebrated this holiday with this person who isn't here it's like breaking out of that finally yeah and i I can say that I remember dancing and <laughs> and just like putting on. Well, I mean it's very <laughs> it's very laughable, but <laughs> putting on uh, Destiny's Child Survivor yes. and just yes. like dancing it out, like yeah,
0: <laughs> yes, the best anthem for <laughs> post breakup so rediscovery of self, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this book is so full of desire and longing. And, you know, the desire sometimes is a group effort. Like you're with your sisters at the spa, you're longing for your mother, even though she's still here. You're longing to feel the way these. Dancers on stage who are dancing Le Sacre du Printemps are feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of sex in your in your book. Um, there's a lot of that kind of desire. You know, but I think the most interesting desire in your book is the desire for yourself, which is radical. I mean, it, it feels almost ridiculous to say. You know, in the year of our Lord 2022 that the desire <laughs> that a woman feels for herself is, is radical, um, mm-hmm. but it is. And there's a risk attached to that. You know, there's a risk that people will criticize you or mock you or not take you seriously. Did that ever trouble you? How, do you ever get any kind of uh, blowback for inhabiting your own desire for yourself? Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Ha, okay, I'm going to no. need a manual here.
1: <laughs> I it's it's funny because I, yeah, I am who I am in, in most spaces. I don't perform for other people, and I also don't write poems for other people. (laughs) So, you know, if I wrote this book and no one ever wanted it, then that would have to be okay. So much of being a writer is about like rejections and getting used to that. And I have said to myself for years, whenever I get a rejection or I don't get something that I applied to, it is an actual reminder to myself of why I write. So I maybe feel bad, that's okay. But then I say to myself, "Ama, why do you write? Okay, well I write because it's a way to be in this world. I write because it helps me like I feel like I have a sense of control over some things that I didn't have control over. I write because I like the way that I feel when I'm making art. So I have these answers. And then none of them have to do with publication or prizes or what anyone else's opinion is of this poem.
0: Yeah. You're still writing. They can't reject that. No. No. And you said you, you like the way you feel when you write. How do you feel when you write?
1: I have that, you know, science the flow state. Yeah. Which is just so good. Yeah, the time passes. And, and also the figuring out, like the kind of problem solving of making a poem. And then I also am like, I'm communing with, with others. I'm communing with other writers. I'm communing with my teachers whose voices are in my head. It feels like open and warm and fun.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so to m- make it a little more concrete, can you, uh, um, you know, the poem that you just read after a year of forgetting, I think it's such an interesting poem because there's no, there's no obvious narrative there. Mm hmm it's really a poem kind of poem, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. You said that one of the pleasures of writing is problem solving. So can you tell me a little bit about, like, what is a problem in this poem that you then solved with the poem? Like, can you just tell me a little bit about the making of this poem?
1: Yeah. I had to push it. (laughs) Because there's, you know, there's an anaphora happening. There's, like, this repetition of I will or I'll. And though there can be an engine in poems like with that kind of repetition, there's also the downside, which is it can fall flat. Mm -hmm. It can start to just be like, I don't actually care. (laughs) If you're a reader, I don't care what happens after this because I know it's going to repeat. So I just remember thinking about pushing the language and trying to like surprise myself especially the last, I guess, three stanzas of the poem, I will make children from office paper. They'll be cut from my stomach wearing blank faces. That whole image is so strange. <laughs> um, and these kind of domestic chores that are happening, the ironing and the laundry and turning down the sh- sheets, how to use that and still... I don't know, startle myself, even the word pillar. So I'll pillar to salt definitely came in revision
0: Mm -hmm.
1: that using that verb in that way. So, yeah, I can just remember having a draft and then really looking at what was feeling a little bit boring (sighs) and trying to make it more enticing for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love that verb, pillar to salt. I mean, how how uh, different it would be if you would have written, I'll turn into a pillar of salt. No, I'll mm-hmm. pillar to salt. It's just mm-hmm. so good. And it's a good point. I hadn't really thought about how boring it could be to just have this list of like, I will do this, I will do that. You know, that at some mm-hmm. point the reader just thinks like, okay, you'll do a bunch of things. I get it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and uh You're right. You kind of you make it so surprising that you want to see what you'll do next Um, Mm. because nothing follows. You know, it seems to follow. Sometimes I will fold the tepid laundry, turn down the sheets and then sleepwalk along the Mississippi until it is ocean. And I'm its muddy saint. I will baptize myself in silt and December. I will become a pungent earthly bulb. I'll pillar to salt. I'll remember the pain of childbirth. Remember being born. There's such a circular movement also of time in there. Mm-hmm. You know, you will, you will, you will, always in the future, always in the future. And then you'll mm-hmm. remember being born like you're right where you started. Mm-hmm. And I think to go back to having or not having children. I think one reason that friends who have children tell me they wanted them was to be a part of that circular movement of time. They will die, but the children are born and they will go on living. And you have this, every ending has like a new beginning. How do you hook into the circular truth of time
1: well there's so many ways to answer that i mean my body will will
0: be a part of the earth at some point i will become a pungent earthly bulb
1: yeah exactly Mm -hmm. and there's also there's also just this being an artist is a part of that circularity i mean i think that's actually a big part of the book is like being a descendant of black women artists and also being in conversation with contemporary artists who are making art now. Like that's a kind of cycle circle that I'm a part of. And I, I don't think the human face (laughs) or the human being is like the most important way to go on. I mean, there's so much trouble in that face like it is making choices that are killing the planet so i'm happy to be going back to dirt (laughs) (laughs) and to be with the planet
0: (laughs) right like you can create other things than humans definitely yes
1: (laughs) yes relationships are i mean lately i've been thinking about just like the very casual relationships that you might have with somebody who like sells fruit at the farmer's market like how beautiful and profound that is truly because that's
0: what makes up our lives yeah i find this so beautiful seriously ama i love your collection love it in a way that feels uh like hunger, you know. Um, mm. and uh, yeah, I feel like you spread your love widely mm. instead of narrowly into a family, like you know, into kids, you know, the way that I mm-hmm. guess it has to be when you have kids, you know. I mean, you better, um, mm-hmm. and yeah, the way that you talk about the relationships that you can have with the, the person selling you vegetables at the market, uh, I think it is profound. I, I think it isn't talked about enough. How close we can feel to human beings who we may never see again. Yeah. And how close it brings us to ourselves. And uh, yeah, again, to that feeling of unity I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm I've just been thinking so much about all this because on Sunday my husband of 12 years and I decided to separate because I don't want children and he does. I mean, he knew that from the mm-hmm. beginning. I never made a made a mystery of that, but yeah, he thought he could get over it and it turns out he didn't. <sighs> So I've really had to like affirm my choice over and over and over again. You know that this life without children is a good life. That this is a Mm -hmm. an okay choice. That I can spread my love widely. Um, That that is a good way to live. Also,
1: it is a good way to live. (laughs) It is a good way to live. Yeah, Yeah. I mean. I mean, I could give you many versions of a pep talk in terms of the child-free thing. (laughs) I just think there's so many different ways to live a life. And we grow up and we're told like, you can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer, you can be a teacher. And then mercifully we figure out like there's a bajillion things we can do. And there's so many ways that we can love and that our life is a love story. And that it's not about just one person. And that family means a lot of different things. I'm, I'm kind of bowing to you in this particular moment and to your grief and to the work of that. And also just affirming that I think it's a beautiful life that you're living and will live.
0: Well, your book definitely felt like um, a hand being extended in my direction. Mm -hmm. So even though you didn't write it for me or any other reader, it, uh, it spoke to me very deeply. So thank you for that. Thank you for writing uh, for writing this book, for choosing to do that with your life, Ama Kojo is the author of two poetry collections Blood of the Air winner of the 8th Annual Drinking Gourd Chapbook Poetry Prize and Bluest Nude, which came out this September. She received the Rona Jaffe Writers Award, the Georgia Reviews Lorraine Williams Poetry Prize, and an NEA Creative Writing Fellowship. She also received support from the Cave Canem Foundation, the Jerome Foundation, and the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation, as well as from the Kalaloo Creative Writing Workshop and the McDowell Colony. She lives in New York City, where she works as a facilitator of social justice training in arts and education. To find out more about Amakojo, check out the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikafus. I'm Helena de Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening.